frankly, the questions people would send in were absolutely outrageous. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Tripology. I'm Alan, and I'm here with the ever-romantic Adam. Alan, darling, how are you feeling today? Happy Valentine's Day. If the listener hasn't worked out yet, we are recording this on the 14th of February. And that's why you're ever-romantic. The 14th of February, Valentine's Day. Some say it's just an appropriation of a 14th century special little romantic day used by card companies and flower companies to make more profit. But here on Tropology, <laughs> oh my goodness, we're big fans of Valentine's Day, aren't we? We are, we are. Do you fancy yourself as a romantic, an old romantic? I think I have contextual romanticism. Don't worry, it isn't contagious, but it is a beautiful thing that we can use to spice up our lives a little bit. I think it's nice to be romantic. I think kindness and romanticism can sometimes be linked. Valentine's Day, it's a day just to remind you to be kind of kind to the people who you uh, feel romantic about. I think so as well. And I think there's a lot of romance around travel as well. I think travel is quite romantic, especially in the way that we do and the way that we encourage. Interesting point you've raised. Yeah, the romanticism of travel. I think that oftentimes around this type of year, people are bombarded with teddy bears holding hearts, little Clinton card celebrations of all things lovely. And uh, sometimes that can extend to the way we perceive things online, on social media and all that stuff. We can start romanticizing different lifestyles, different things. And travel, of course, is the quintessential romantic lifestyle. I think as well that going away for a city break, often people use travel as a way of being romantic, don't they? But yeah, I can't say I can't say I'm doing anything that romantic today. What about yourself? What do you got planned over there? I have a quite romantic day, actually. Platonically romantic. I've just surrounded myself with good friends. I've been out on a boat. I've been hanging around the beach. It has been quite a beautiful romantic day. But I think today kind of presents a lovely opportunity to talk a little bit about what it's like doing romance whilst traveling long term. I want to talk about the difficulties that, that travel can present when you're doing romantic things. Me and you have both been in long term relationships whilst traveling. We both started relationships whilst traveling. Yeah. And we both kind of try and find our way through the romantic world whilst we're traveling. And I'm I've sat here on Valentine's Day morning thinking, I just want to know what Adam thinks about Valentine's Day and travel. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think it's a really good opportunity to explain, uh, I don't know, a little bit about sort of maybe the relationships that we've been a part of whilst traveling and maybe some of the complications. It's definitely a subject that we've touched on before. Um, and now, I mean, I'm I'm about as far away from a romantic relationship as I could possibly be, Alan. Yeah, okay. Well, we can talk a little bit about that if you want. I mean, you're someone who I think has very much taken the last few years to focus on themselves, mm -hmm. and that's a really cool thing. So does a day like today make you take stock of that in a slightly different light? Perhaps. I mean, I just wouldn't want to intrude on anyone else's day. And I don't know if, you know, when you get to our age, whether Valentine's Day... It's just kind of a tradition, isn't it? You might sort of buy your partner flowers or go out for dinner or do something in that sense. But I don't know how much of that is sort of the marketing that exists in the society in which we live. I mean, I'm not putting too much pressure on it, to be honest with you, mate. 
talking about focusing on myself, I, I do want to do a lot of things for myself over the next year. And my travels, of course, my travel, travel objectives, not something that we've necessarily spoken about on recent episodes. You know, at the turn of the year, I wrote down a list of things that I was really interested in doing, and I hope to achieve all of those in this year. But um, not many of those involve a romantic relationship. If it happens, it's likely to happen on the road. Yeah, and I think the road is a good place for it to happen. So mm. let me talk about that, because I think a lot of people who are in relationships struggle with the idea of travel because they think, how is this going to affect my relationship? And a lot of people who ain't in relationships think, oh God, I wonder what dating whilst traveling is like. Is it all just one night stands, meeting people, seeing them for a brief period and then off into the night? Mm. Or can you have a more sustainable sort of travel romance? And I'm here to answer all your questions. Why don't you ask me questions as if you're kind of trying to learn from from a from a romance master maybe you're a new backpacker and you're thinking about romance what questions would you have for me i mean maybe a very personal question i've got is that do you think it's possible to achieve a sustainable relationship and be on the road but maybe with a maturity whereby you understand that your partner might have different objectives to you and uh you know is there ever an opportunity where you can sort of part ways and then rejoin one another? I, I suppose it's, it's a hell of a question because it will depend on so many different factors. Yeah, but I do think there's all kinds of relationships that can survive on the road. I think that if you're both interested in travel and you understand that a relationship should be better than the sum of its parts, and you can operate effectively as trusting, loyal individuals as well as a team. I think that relationship can survive. I don't think there's any reason why you shouldn't travel together and then separately and then come together again. Tools like we're using now, um, online video mm -hmm. call service can be used to make things feel still intimate, you know? I think that I've met people who have been away from their partners for a significant amount of time on the road and then have come together successfully at the end of that, traveled together, enjoyed that, gone apart. Okay, great. Uh, next question. I'm going for the jugular here. Yeah. How much of an issue are the distractions that you frequently come across in the backpacking community? Define distractions for me. Maybe other people that you might be interested in sleeping with. Well, I think that if you have a partner who you're loyal to and in love with and want to be with, then that shouldn't be an issue. And if it is, it's going to be an issue everywhere else as well as on the traveling backpacking turf. I think that what traveling does is often act as a catalyst yeah. for issues that would already otherwise arise. If you're the sort of person who's given to infidelity and some amazing Aphrodite-esque human is going <laughs> to take your gaze away from your partner, then that's going to happen as well in a nightclub in Manchester. It's just that it might happen more frequently and, uh, and, and in a more clear way in a hostile environment. I also think that about taking a relationship on the road, you might find yourself arguing frequently with your partner suddenly, but those arguments would happen anyway, eventually. It just might take two or three years of living in the same house, going to work, coming back, whereas in travel, it might take two or three weeks. Right, of course, wow. Um, would you say that by going traveling, by going on a very sort of long term backpacking experience or something similar, maybe even just living, you know, upping sticks and going to move in another country, do you think that it's possible maybe to achieve a, a deeper, stronger bond through the experiences that you will have together as a couple? 
Yeah, I definitely. I think the lament often of, of travelers who are solar backpacking, they go, I love this. I love the individuality. I love the freedom. I love the, the distance uh, that I can have from perhaps previous toxic friendships and relationships. But one lament that you often hear solar backpackers have is like, oh, maybe I don't, I'm not able to share this experience with someone who gets me in the way that, you know, maybe you'd like to. And I think that, that travel in general can deepen a connection like that. Okay, good. Yeah, I think I'd agree with all of what you've just said. Um, do you think that going away, traveling in the mindset that you're going to meet the person that you're, you know, will change your life forever, someone that you're going to fall head over heels in love with and maybe your, your sort of long-term partner, do you think that's just a good mindset to be in? I don't think you should ever pursue, I don't think you should ever pursue things that don't exist in the real world yet, prospectively, as the main reason that you do anything. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, this person that you might meet out in the world doesn't actually exist. They're an idea and therefore being an idea should never be the sole reason with which you pursue travel. Pursue travel for the real things that actually exist. Pursue travel for the salt flats in a uni or the pyramids at Giza or the amazing sunsets that you know you're going to have on a beach in Bali, for God's sake. But don't pursue travel for the idea of a human being who is as yet unmet. Yeah, I think if we extend that a little bit further, maybe there isn't just one person that we're compatible with in life, but many. If I take me as the example, I don't think that the person I'm going to be most compatible with, the type of person, and want to spend a lot of my time with over the next few years, is going to be living in the city that they grew up in and doing the same job that they've been doing for 15 years Totally. I'm, you see what I'm getting at? I think that the person that I will ultimately fall in love with is probably doing something to, similar to what you're doing right now, potentially. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you've made. You are, by definition of the fact that you're pursuing something which you love, mm. you're being authentically true to yourself by going traveling. You aren't forcing yourself to earn money for someone else's dreams you're not selling your time for a cup of cappuccino down at starbucks you're doing something which is authentically and unadulteratedly you mm -hmm. you therefore increase your chances of meeting someone who you're gonna have a really cool connection with because you're putting yourself in an environment where you'll meet other people who are authentically and unadulteratedly being themselves and that's an amazing jumping off point for any relationship so i do i do think that you're by traveling, you're putting yourself in an amazing position to meet someone that maybe just shouldn't be your sole pursuit because the second it becomes your sole pursuit, you kind of disrupt that authenticism. You disrupt that unadulterated, I'm out here for myself, and, and, and then the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, it's a tricky one, a sticky one. Do you think that meeting someone traveling is, you know, the perfect grounding or, or ground, sorry, the foundations for a relationship, shall we say? Do you think that uh, that could be a relationship that's set up for success. Well, it really depends, doesn't it? Because I've met people traveling who I think, God, if we were just at home and in our respective home bases and we had a year to make this relationship work, we'd probably end up being together. Yeah. But unfortunately, they have a surf school booked for three weeks time <laughs> and I have to go and look after a primate in the jungle or something you know so th there's the scheduling errors that have led to relationships not work and and I am 
almost always very unwilling to compromise on my own travel situation. Mm -hmm. But then, then likewise, there's been people who I've met who I've got on really well with and had beautiful times with where I think, God, there is no world where I would have met this person had it not been for the context of travel. Amazing. And I think it can go both ways. An openness uh, to the experience is probably the number one thing I would suggest. I think that travel and the connections you make traveling mm -hmm. and the sex that you might have whilst traveling and the little dates and coffee excursions you might have while traveling. These are all shortcuts and catalysts for connection, real genuine human connection. And I think that connection can be desublimated down to just, just sex or, or I'm just getting an ego boost from swiping right on Tinder or going to a coffee shop. Mm. But all of that's fine as long as authentically what you're pursuing is connection, human to human connection. And it's respectful and consensual and beautiful and you're making each other feel good. All these things are, are fine. I think being authentically true to the idea of what a date is, what sex is, you're connecting with people. And, and from there, romance and love or friendship or, or any of these things can blossom. Yeah, that's lovely. I really love what you just said. And I do have an example of the question I'm about to ask you, but is there anyone that you've met on your travels that you still think of fondly and you think, ah, you know, maybe you parted ways too early, but you think in another life or maybe later in the same life, there's maybe a, something, something there, you know? Yeah, a lot of the people that I've met whilst traveling who I've been in relationships whilst traveling continue today to be some of my favorite people. There are a number of people who... Now I might not have any romantic interest in, but I know that if I needed them, they'd be there, they'd pick up the phone. Uh, and other people who, you know, relationships that could be revisited down the line. I think that all the people I'm closest to in the world, they're people that I've met on the road, basically. Yeah. The example I was going to give was, you remember when I went to Japan, sort of last year, whenever it was, Yeah. Um, in, in Tokyo, I ended up sitting in a bar and was joined by a Japanese woman. And I think I might have mentioned this on the podcast, maybe in the lost and found section. If you are interested in hearing what Alan and I chat about after the episode, head over to patreon.com forward slash tripology podcast, where we have the lost and found section, a little extra bit. Yeah. So anyway, I met this lady, lovely Japanese lady, and she ended up asking me out on the, the next Sunday, right? So this was like maybe a Friday. And she said, what are you doing on Sunday? Don't know if you have any plans. Would love to sort of take you out for the day. So it was kind of a date, I guess. And she was super cute, really nice, spoke fantastic English. So we were able to have quite interesting conversations. Yeah. And I found out on the date that she was actually married. And she was, you know, she she only had until about six or seven o'clock that night because she had to go home because her husband was cooking her dinner. And I... Did you feel like the, the date was misunderstood by you or was it like a, a perspective? Yeah, I mean, I... I I thought it quite strange to go out for the day with someone that you'd just met in a bar as a married person. Um, but who am I to question whatever sort of um, choices people make? I just felt like it was by sort of, let's say, Western standards, if I can say that without being too offensive, it was quite clearly a date. Right. Um, you know, she sort of took me out for lunch and wouldn't let me pay and was telling me lots of nice things and what have you. And um, she's awesome, awesome woman and uh yeah I I was very attracted to her obviously and then when we parted ways at the end of the evening there was this sort of moment between the two of us where mm. you know I I thought if I was a dickhead I'd try and kiss her now 
Yeah, right. <laughs> but but it was just a quite a courteous sort of, oh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed today. You know, I hope we stay in touch kind of thing. And that was that. Okay. Well, how did you walk away from that interaction feeling? Because obviously that stuff goes on. Did it like reduce your trust in humanity? Did you feel like it was maybe a cultural difference or did you feel like maybe yeah I don't, it's a complicated situation for you to be put in really yeah i mean i was just very grateful for the day and for her time the fact that she had chosen to spend the day with me and show me some some parts of tokyo you know she took me to a, a really sort of local sushi joint that was fantastic and we ended up going to a karaoke bar where she like i had honestly al i had a very very good day all round, so i couldn't be um you know too upset but it was the kind of, oh, I, I don't really know how to phrase it, but I thought if things were slightly different, I would have quite liked for that to develop into something. And that might seem quite far-fetched, but when you're like us and you, you're willing to just move mountains for experiences, I thought, you know, that could have been me moving to Tokyo and having a little fling for a few months. I'd have been open to that. Oh, so you're kind of like a romantic fantasist then in some ways. For sure, for sure. I don't think I am. That's a key difference between us. I don't create worlds where I think, oh, I could be with that person. That would be a beautiful thing. I, I, I'm quite realistic romantically. Do you think you um, kind of fall in love a little bit easily, even with people that you know you can't be with, like a married Japanese woman that you met for one evening? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think quite famously, I've got a reputation among my friends and family for being exactly what you've just described. Right. Okay. Interesting. I actually, considering we're very close friends, I actually didn't have you down as a romantic fantasy. I don't think. Um, but I have a question for you, mm -hmm. just quickly. Dating apps whilst traveling. Yeah. I think they're brilliant. Because I think dating apps can be this really vacuous, oh, I find them attractive, I find them unattractive, swipe right, swipe left, bacchanalian festival of chaos. Yeah, yeah. But in the travel context, I genuinely think they're useful for meeting people, local people, other travelers. And then it can develop into something platonic or not platonic. It just depends. Yeah, yeah. But I think that initial just like, okay, that person seems cool. Let's both swipe on each other. For me, has resulted in some really cool hangouts and often local people showing me around the city which you know genuinely has not necessarily developed into anything else what do you feel about them i think that's great i think as long as the expectations are set i guess or you know you're going in there with the with the right attitude for for you both or whoever you're going to meet it will develop in into whatever it will be and I, I do think that they're a very useful tool for meeting people in that local area whether it be another traveler or if it's a local, like you said, being able to show you around. I think that they're, they're a very positive thing. Yeah, I agree. So a little tropology tip. If you are a single person or even a person in a very, very cool, sexy, open relationship, get yourself on Tinder, Bumble, Hinge, all that stuff before you go traveling because it can pave the way. Just have an open mind. It doesn't have to be necessarily, it's not too serious. Just meet people, go out, have fun experiences, talk to people. Oh, I think I like the fact that you've got dreadlocks. <laughs> I also have dreadlocks. Let's meet. Let's go for a coffee. Why not explore the city together? It's all beautiful. Things are here up i don't know about you but i've got so hot under the collar thinking about all things valentine's day i need to go and meditate dreadlock to wedlock let's go oh and even 
even though I'm here in that sweltering Sri Lankan hate being pinched by mosquitoes, that meditation break has brought me some semblance of peace. I really, really have been thinking a lot, Adam, about how much I miss you, how much I miss being in the same space of you, and also how much I miss, can you guess what? Is it one of our favourite items on the podcast? Yeah. Long ago on this podcast, we used to do an item called Hostel Common Room, where we'd encourage people to write to us at tropologypodcast at gmail.com. We invited the listener to imagine walking through the reception desk, past the communal kitchen, past those bunk beds and in to the shared space where me and you sat like elder statesmen ready to answer all their questions. We stopped doing it because, frankly, the questions people would send in were absolutely outrageous. <laughs> but now we'd like to open the floor again. People <laughs> people often write to us. They, they ask questions. They talk about the podcast. But on hostile common room we want people to write in with questions that they think would benefit the travel community writ large ask me and adam anything you like if you want to know oh what backpack should i have what mac should i carry i mean mac as in <laughs> one of those macs that you wear you know to shelter you from the rain uh, i think i write in those are gear questions or you could say where should i go next on my holiday what kind of a thing should i think about when I'm sat in a hostel. All those questions and more can be answered on the Hostel Common Room play of the theme music. Hostel Common Room. How many countries you been to, mate? Adam, Hostel Common Room. Questions from listeners. Go. All the pressure. Here we go. So Charlie from Wolverhampton in the UK has written in. And they say, hi, boys, listening to Tropology has brought me ever closer to booking that one way ticket. I know you're both big fans of working holiday visas, and I've recently been researching them. I plan on taking advantage of multiple working holiday visas. But how on earth does one choose which one to begin with? How did you choose which visa to obtain first and why? I'm only 22 and open to different types of work. I do also intend on achieving permanent residency for one of the countries. Many congratulations on your Canadian permanent residency, Adam. Keep up the great work and thanks. Oh, Charlie, you beautiful 22-year-old <laughs> Wolverhampton prospective traveller from the future. It is our pleasure to answer this question. Adam, do you agree that when it comes to WHVs, working holiday visas for people from the UK, mm -hmm. but this might also apply to many different Western countries, there's the big three, I would say. Yeah, and the big three that you're thinking of, are they all English-speaking countries? Exactly, and for that reason, they are in the big three. There are some other ones, but the big three, in my opinion, is New Zealand, mm -hmm. Australia, Yeah. And Canada. Those are, are three working holiday visas that I've done. English-speaking countries. Oh, you get a lot of bang for your buck financially. Easy to find work. Easy to extend those visas in some context. Mm -hmm. They really are the, the massive triumvirate of working holiday visas for English people. And I also believe that's true for a lot of nations on this planet. So maybe we'll focus our discussion around those three. But I know there's also a working holiday visa available for Japan. There's also working schemes for South Korea. There's also some stuff in Hong Kong, isn't there? There is. There is. And even Taiwan. Yeah, amazing. Singapore as well. Yeah, there's lots of things that you can do. Let's focus on the big three for old Charlie, because I think um, those are probably the main ones he's considering. Okay, nice one. Shoot away, Adam. You've just got uh, permanent residency in Canada, so you're uniquely 
poised to talk about that process and, and how you sort of decided to choose Canada initially and how you decided eventually to want to stay there forever. And then we'll segue into the other two. Yeah, so Canada for me was one that I had always sort of kicked further down the road because I thought it was probably the country I was most likely to want to live in long term. Yeah. So Charlie's question is asking sort of which, you know, how do you choose which one, which order would you do them in, assuming you're going to tackle multiple. And I got to the age of 29 and I thought, right, I've only got a year now to bag the visa, get into the country and then... I went there actually with the objective to achieve permanent residency. So I know I knew very early on that that was going to be my objective. Yeah, I think it's just about sort of what's important to you. Would I have felt differently about Canada if I'd never been to Australia? I'm not too sure. So, I mean, the reason why I did Australia first was purely geographical, I think, because it was the furthest country away. Canada was your last working holiday visa that you felt you had, the last place where you'd be able to achieve permanent residency. So it was really like, I've got to fall in love with this place kind of a vibe. Oh, you think there was sort of a, an added pressure, maybe? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Did you feel that or not so much? No, I wouldn't have said that. I think because the industry that I that I work in and the skill set that I have, uh, I think there are just lots of opportunities in Canada at the moment. Not to say there aren't in Australia, but the wine industry in Australia is more well-established and, and certainly in New Zealand as well than it is in Canada. So when it comes to sort of competition for jobs, it's much more easy to get a decent job in Canada, in my opinion, than it would be necessarily for me in Australia. There's just more sort of competition both domestically and perhaps internationally. However, I think you can achieve a very high quality of life in all three countries. Yeah, okay, good. So I think maybe the first thing we should say to Charlie is he's rushed ahead and he's like, oh, I want to get permanent residency somewhere. I might, I might even go so far as to say, I wouldn't even think about permanent residency until you've experimented a little bit, traveled a little bit, lived in a few of these different places. I mean, look, if you go on your first working holiday experience, you fall in love, you absolutely have the dream job, you want to pursue permanent residency, no one's going to stop you. I think that's a good plan, but that should not be your mindset going in. Your mindset with the working holiday visa is, I want to travel, I want to earn some money for traveling, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to see how I like this place. And if I like it, then you know that there are options. So Charlie, don't get too uh, in your own head about the whole permanent residency thing. And then we're talking about order, like where do you want to go first, all of that stuff. I'm going to throw New Zealand in the hat for this reason alone. Canada, very large country, very difficult to get around without a vehicle. There's a lot of admin to set up. You're going to need to do all that. You're going to need to get yourself a car. You're going to need to pick a city. Once you've picked that city, you're very isolated. You kind of have to take a flight to move from Alberta to BC. Australia, likewise, a lot of people get camper vans and go, you know, through Victoria into South Australia, vice versa, up to Queensland and all that stuff. But big, difficult country to get around. New Zealand, you can prospectively pick a city in New Zealand. You can start in Auckland and, you know, within a few days, you can have driven down to the bottom of the North Island, taking a ferry across to the South Island. You can explore New Zealand quite easily by vehicle. I would say New Zealand's a good place to go and then find your own way around. You're not locked into any particular place in New Zealand and that must be attractive for a new traveler. Mm -hmm. Undeniably, it is easier to get around New Zealand than it is Australia or Canada. And then I, I actually think it's probably easier to 
get some backpacker style jobs in New Zealand and Australia as well. There's a real infrastructure for like hiring backpackers in those countries. I think that you'll meet a lot of other backpackers in those countries very, very easily. I didn't meet many other backpackers when I was in Canada, only when I sort of went to the city and stayed in hostels. But for the most part, I was with Canadian people. So if you want to find a backpackery community, earn some cash, travel around a country, I know that New Zealand and Australia are going to be great places for Charlie to do that. Yeah, it is really set up for that as well. I feel like there's a a real sort of, a deep entrenched backpacking culture in Australia that kind of supports the backpacker as well. Absolutely. And Charlie, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's amazing. If if you uh, were to follow my advice to the T, I would say travel for six months before embarking on working holiday visa. I think that's the absolute best thing you can do. If you want to get to uh, from the UK to Australia or New Zealand, there's an amazing path from one place to the other. It's called Southeast Asia. Why not go from you know Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, down that way, get closer, fly from Indonesia. That's an amazing route. Other than that, I hope you absolutely enjoy your working holiday visa. You're doing an amazing things. Thanks for writing to us, tropologypodcast at gmail.com. If you want your question asked and answered, on the hostel common room i think that's been comprehensive adam happy valentine's day to you to the listening audience to charlie let us know how you get on and we'll see you all on the next episode of tropology podcast sending love everyone we'll see you next week take care Bye. Bye. Bye.